If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get ASHA continuing ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code SUP20 for the insanely low rate of $59. This is part two of a two-part series featuring Stephanie O'Silas and Mary Louise Nichols on the Speech Uncensored podcast. Stephanie and Mary Louise are joining me today to wrap up their talk on racial barriers in speech pathology. Today's talk is focusing on actions, on steps that we can take to change systemic racism in our field. Uh, Mary Louise and Stephanie talk about steps we can take at the personal level, increasing our awareness and focusing on introspection, and then looking at the system level and how we can change workplace and education culture. Um, It was a true privilege to have Mary Louise and Stephanie on the podcast um, to have this very important conversation, Um, but it's all just talk if we don't take the tools that they're providing for us and make this meaningful change. My name is Leanne Porter. I'm the host of the Speech Uncensored podcast, and now let's hear from Stephanie and Mary Louise. Welcome to part two of a two-part series where I'm sitting down with Mary Louise Nichols and Stephanie O'Silas to talk about the change we need to see in our field. In our first talk, we focused on bringing awareness to the racial barriers in our field of speech and language pathology. In this talk, we want to focus on taking the steps to dismiss these racial barriers and really creating the change that we need and we want to see in our field. So let's get into it. Let's meet our wonderful guests today. Um, Let's start with Mary Louise. Hello, Mary Louise. How are you doing today? Hi, Leanne. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm pretty good. I'm really excited about our topic and our conversation today. Um, But first, let's go ahead and tell everyone a little bit more about you. Absolutely. All right. So um, I am Mary Louise Nichols. Um, I am an acute care speech and language pathologist. I've previously worked in inpatient rehab, uh, currently working in acute care. I've kind of bounced back and forth between the two. Um, I love everything MedSLP. Um, I'm in Houston, Texas, uh, and I'm so happy to be here. Excellent. (laughs) That's right. For round two. Here we go. And I'm also joined by Stephanie O'Silas. How are you doing today? I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm doing really good. Really good. I'm happy to have you on the show today. Thank you. Um, Tell everyone a little bit about you and your background. Sure. So you'll also find me in Dallas, Texas. Um, Currently, I'm a medical speech language pathologist, and I'm also a business development expert. Um, I own and operate my own um, private rehab company. We offer interdisciplinary rehab care. That's um, PT, OT, speech. We do direct bill outpatient as well as manage um, therapy services that are for contractual uh, based. 
um, we offer those services to other corporations, other, um, be it government, be it other institutions. So we're doing a lot of work there. Um, another part of my involvement, I'm also involved in the Texas Speech Hearing Association. I'm part of the, um, I'm committed member on the Business Management Committee. Um, every year we tend to do a presentation at um, Tisha and we love discussing topics on ethics. Leadership is what I love discussing. Um, that's one of my prime interests in addition to um, clinical interests such as dysphagia and post-acute neuro rehab. Mm. Excellent. All right. Okay. So this part two is a continuation of that discussion that was held in part one, where Mary Louise and Stephanie discussed what, what are the racial barriers to having a more diverse workforce in our field? And they talked about their own experiences and what that looks like at different levels in this career sector. So what that looks like in the education or the academia, what that looks like in the workforce. Um, and now we're here to continue that and talk about once, once we have the awareness, what do we do with that? How do we put these thoughts and this knowledge into action? So let me hand that back over and get started on kind of continuing that discussion on that awareness and introspection. So what does change in the SLP field need to look like? You know, my first comments where we left off before, mm-hmm. we, um, if, if anything, awareness, a higher grade of consciousness, um, and the ability to just be comfortable, you know, comfortable talking about it, comfortable, um, existing, coexisting with people that look like you, people that don't look like you. And when we talk about making change, we recognize that we can't fix a problem we don't acknowledge. And so recognizing that there is a problem is part of that battle and getting everybody on the same page about what that looks like and spreading that awareness. And one of the tools to do that that's been circulating online has been increasing opportunities for how do I how do I want to think of it like um like a standardized education like a not coming at it like on your own like oh I just heard about this on social media but taking CEUs having specific courses in the graduate school and probably even undergraduate course requirements too do either of you want to kind of talk about like that as a potential drive? I think education is so important, whether it be a formal continuing education credit. I think that is extremely important. Um, but also education on our own, doing our own uh, doing our own informal education. So talking with people, listening to podcasts such as this one, reading. We've had so many SLPs of color who have written articles and blogs and personal experiences on Ash's website or on Bosla's website or, you know, again, uh, on Instagram. So many people are coming forward and educating us, telling us things that we may not have known until they spoke up. So I think getting informal education from these people is so, uh, from these people um, who want to share their stories is so, so important. You brought up awareness when you're talking about how, you, you talked about how important awareness is Asha did their listening session and I listened to both Um, and they were extremely difficult to listen to, but um, it gave me a sense of awareness. Things that I didn't know were happening. um, I was able to 
hear an Ash's listening session. And it's great, you know, um, as, distur- as disturbing as it was and, and, and as discouraging as it was, um, it was good to hear a story other than my own because that's the only reference that I have essentially. Um, so I think we need to start doing more education in that realm. But as far as continuing education, formal continuing education credits, I think that is so important because being able to build rapport and relationships with our, our colleagues, our interdisciplinary team and our, our clients and our patients is so so important. It is such a large portion of what we do. And we have to make sure that we are skilled and um, competent in so many other uh, sectors, you know, whether it be swallowing, whether it be speech and language, whether it be, you know, motor speech disorders or traumatic brain injury, or even ethics. These are things that we need to do our jobs well. And I think we need to understand how to interact with people who don't look like us, who don't speak like us, who don't live like us, who don't have the same religion as us. We need to know how to interact with these people effectively so that we can do our jobs to the best of our ability. Um, And just like it is required, just like we have required education for so many other things, we need required education for this. Um, And Leanne, like you mentioned, there are so many um, petitions that are going around right now um, that I believe are still open to be signed and you know to get schools uh universities to start having a structured and required education portion in their curriculum about diversity about race about ethnicity about being clinically competent and culturally competent so that needs to happen at the university level but also a continuing education for professionals who are already in this field some uh, some people uh who have been in this field for a while more seasoned professionals uh this was not a this really wasn't a, a hot topic when some of uh, some of our more seasoned professionals work were coming through graduate school and so they may they may be learning this on the fly it's not necessarily that they don't care or that they don't want to learn but it's that it wasn't it wasn't really a it wasn't really a topic and now it is and they're learning these things you know on the fly on the drop job training and so I think it's so important that we do have these continuing education credits that are required. It should not be optional about whether you want to be a culturally competent clinician, um, because we know that cultural competence equals your clinical competence. And if we know that, then how can we make it optional to be a culturally competent clinician? It must be required. So this is one of the big changes that, that we really need to see. And I hope if you're listening and you have not signed one of those petitions, I encourage you to sign one. There are on uh, social media, if you're in any of the SLP groups, they've been circulating around. And if I can, if it's still circulating and I can get my hands on one, I will add it in the links. Yeah, we'll, we'll have it posted so people can uh, click the link. If the signature portion of the petition has closed, then they can at least track how it's doing. Because just, just signing it isn't meaning that you're finished or that you've done right. your due diligence. We need to follow up and keep these institutions accountable for for enforcing our recommendations and what we want to see change. So if you've signed one of those petitions, follow them up and apply the pressure where it needs to go to make sure that these changes are being made. Absolutely. I wanted to ask Mary Louise, would you even take it a step further and advise that in the same way where Texas, for instance, requires that we have two hours of ethics for CEU, in the same way that ASHA requires that we have supervision, would you even suggest that a solution could be that we requ- we're required that every three years we're, we are 
dedicating some of our CEUs to the multicultural diversity topics. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's a doable change. I think that's actionable. If you ask yes. Me. Absolutely. And I think what Leanne brought up about, Leanne, what you said, it's not just about signing. When you sign, it's not over. For those who are listening and, you know, you may work at a university or you may supervise students or you may be in some position where you have some position of influence or power, you know, take that back to your university and say, hey, this is what I heard other universities are doing. Have we considered doing this at our university? And so that's taking it a step further. So not just signing a petition and saying, "Mm, I hope this happens one day. It's signing the petition and then maybe taking a copy of that petition and saying, look look at what other people are doing. Maybe this is something that we could implement here. So that's the personal change. That's, That's the personal change that we need to see. And Leanne, you talked about changes that we need to see. I think there are levels to this. Um, And at the very most basic level is personal change, what you can do for yourself. And and that's just uh, being an advocate. I would love to expand on that and ask if people are interested in making more personal changes and becoming better advocates, effective allies, what would be some resources or directions that you would want to point them in the direction and being a supportive ally within our field. And if you want to make that just in general as a, being a decent human being in our society, feel free. <laughs> That's the first step, believe it or not. I have a good example that I think I could share. You asked the question, being a, what does being a good advocate, a good ally look like? And I know that at one of my, there's a newer university that has is kind of arriving in, um, in the Dallas scene. And that's the University of the St. Augustine, for instance. And I remember vividly being approached uh, by the program director at Tisha with interest for, they were trying to fill a position and she made it clear that diversity for her was very important. And I have seen that in some of the retention that they're doing for their staff. I've seen that, um, that they're actually actioning that, they're putting that into play by recruiting and ensuring that they are bringing on staff members that, that are persons of color. And I would even advise anyone involved in or or influential to any degree in the multicultural courses that are already taught in graduate programs, I would encourage them to reach out to providers in the community that, you know, share different experiences that can come in perhaps for a segment or for a crash, a, a panel for instance, in um, to really kind of add value to that course to make sure that every perspective is represented. Right at the tail end of part one, Stephanie, you were starting to get into the topic of Karen culture. And as we talk about like changing culture and how we need to change the culture of our workplaces sometimes and the culture of our academia and institutions, how, how do we start making action on that maybe is my question sure sure so you know i always like to start by adding premise and just creating you know sharing the context so in the last segment for your listeners i described how caring culture can be applicable to the workforce um, our daily interactions um, in predominantly white workspaces and i described 
two examples, those examples were one, tattletelling, quote, quote, right? And then the other being copying emails, um, writing emails where you know you're you're reporting, but you're also copying a whole tons of people on the email. Or it could just be maybe you're sharing feedback or a correction, but there's a ton of people copied on the email. It's really important to take into consideration how this is per being perceived or how this is being received by the other person. It's very important. And when you value or at least understand when you're dealing with somebody that has different experiences from yours, that person may have may that say someone like myself, if I'm a black person and I am, and most of my work settings are predominantly white, imagine if this is a repeated experience for me. So for some, you just don't know if this, this caring culture that I'm describing, you just don't know if the person that's the target, the person that you're targeting, you don't know if that could be a repeated experience for them. And so this is what it looks like. It looks like Karen culture. And so I feel as though one way that we could improve our interactions, I think part of our evolution as, as speech pathologists, like we really need to get to a place where we're able to resolve issues constructively with our peers. That's leadership. You know, that's, that's leadership. That's a portrayal of leadership. Just being able to see, see the humanity in somebody and see that they're not the enemy and to really come to them and, and ask them questions, politely persistent questioning, they say, you know, ask them questions to really kind of get to the, the bottom of why they, they're not producing the results that you wanted to see. Because I, it, it's very possible. It's very likely that the tattletelling, the copying, the emails, it creates a very hostile work environment, a very non-inclusive environment, a very uncomfortable environment. And it even worse for someone that this has been a, their repeated experience. So I do feel like it could be a product of just being perceived as confrontational or unapproachable. But what I think what all of us can do really is first understanding this reality and then two, just being very human about how we deal with issues, resolving them constructively with our peers, our coworkers, rather than reporting them in ways that kind of catch them off guard totally to the point where you really remove that conversation. Mm -hmm. that, that conversation piece is so important. So what I'm hearing is that when people, how do I want to put this? Like what I'm hearing is that there's this misconception, this stereotype that your black colleague is unapproachable and you perceive you're having a conflict with them. So rather than go to that colleague directly and discuss that, you're sending emails to the supervisor or you're going around that person and not being forthright. Is that what I'm This is an experience that I think a lot would probably resonate with. It's, it's a reality and my point in just highlighting this, this, these specific behaviors is the kind of workforce that it creates. Mm -hmm. I will say, I will add to that. Um, and just to give an example to kind of drive home the point that Stephanie is making, I think it's a great one. Personally, I will say, I feel, uh, personally speaking, I feel that I have been given very few opportunities to make mistakes in my profession. I don't feel that I 
get the same sort of grace when I make mistakes. And for that reason, I've worked extremely, extremely hard to perfect what I do every day. And I think a lot of people of color in this field would agree that we are not given the same, the same people of color in this field are not given the same kind of grace. And so like Stephanie said, it does result in a, in a hostile work environment. It results in a lot of stress. And sometimes at the end of the day, you're just like, I can't do this anymore. And it's because when I, you know, if, when I make a mistake, what happens is, is it gets it gets escalated up the chain. When a lot of people of color make mistakes, it gets escalated up the chain. And I don't have anyone pulling me to the side saying, hey, you know, let's take a look at this uh, modified barium swallow study together. I think you missed something. Or let's review that fees. Or, you know, let's talk about this. I don't always get that grace. Now it involves me sitting in, in a meeting with my supervisor about how I'm incompetent and if I speak up, then I become confrontational. And and so these are the things that people are experiencing in our field. And that, I mean, again, it becomes humiliating. It becomes, you know, it becomes very depressing. And, and you begin to question yourself. You get this imposter sim- syndrome, you know, am I good enough to be here? And sometimes that results in people leaving. And so I think what Stephanie is saying in regards to this caring culture is that, you know, when we escalate these situations, we know how they will end. We know what we're doing when we go directly to our supervisor instead of going to our colleague. Um, We know the outcome of that situation. We know the ramifications of that situation, but there's a reason why we do that. And it's because we know what the outcome will be. It will be, um, there will be repercussions. There will be reprimanding. And so some people would prefer to do that than to have a conversation with their colleague and give them the opportunity to learn or grow, or maybe not even for their colleague to learn, maybe for them to learn and grow because maybe they're wrong and maybe they need to talk to their their colleague and they can find out something that they didn't know. And so what happens is when we do things like this, when we don't have a conversation directly with our, our colleague, it results in a hostile work environment. It results in people leaving, feeling like they aren't welcomed. It, it results in, uh, you know, tension and resentment. And so we need to start having these conversations uh, with each other. We need to be giving, setting the same expectations for all of our colleagues and giving everyone the same amount of grace, and, you know, and, and room for mistakes, because that's a lot, that's a lot of pressure uh, when you feel like you have to be perfect. Kind of, contradictory to that statement. Um, I, one, another thing that I think we can do to improve the culture in our field and to bring change into our field is the opposite, which is speaking up. You know, I think about representative John Lewis, uh, who passed away recently. And one of his famous quotes is about making good trouble. And I think that applies to this situation and how sometimes, you know, we do need to make some good trouble. Now, reporting your colleague to their supervisor for petty things, things you don't like, you didn't like how they wore their hair that day, their scrubs were wrinkled and you didn't like that, that's that's petty drama. But on the opposing side, we can make good trouble. We can speak up when we see injustices, when we see things that aren't happening we can start speaking up and making some good trouble. And that involves some conflict. And I think we tend to shy away from that in our profession. But I think, you know, I think it's okay 
to make some some good conflict, some good trouble if it's going to result in an outcome for a, a better profession. So again, going back to, you know, if you're a professor out there and you see some things that are not right, speak up about it, you know? When I listened to the ASHA listening session, I heard some uh, professors were saying that some pretty outright racist statements were made to them. Some condescending language and discriminatory language was being used in meetings and presentations and professional events, and nobody was saying anything out of fear that they uh, may lose their job or they may um, be reprimanded for speaking up when something is, you know, when when something is not right or speaking up in regards to these statements that were being made. And I feel like that needs to stop. We need to start speaking up when we see things that are not right. When we're seeing racism, when we're seeing discrimination, when we're seeing just simple microaggression, somebody saying something to someone about their hair or them being unapproachable, a good response would be like, what? Oh, you think she's unapproachable? What, you know, why do you feel that she's unapproachable? Or have you attempted to approach her? Or some things like that instead of nodding and saying, oh, yeah, like I agree, she's unapproachable. Like ask some questions. Um, and maybe that's a perfect time to educate one of your colleagues about, you know, why you can't make statements like that and allow your colleague to examine why they think that she is, this person is unapproachable or why she thinks she's not a good employee or a good student, why? And we can start getting to the bottom of, of, of these things, these barriers, if people are bold enough and willing to speak up and start knocking these barriers out of the way. Mm-hmm. I really like that distinction that you're making between you know standing up and making good trouble opposed to what you were talking about earlier, where when that person was going around the SLPs back to, you know, going above them to the supervisor, creating bad trouble because they knew the outcome would be disciplinary action. They're creating bad trouble there. They're not looking for a a positive solution to that situation because they're not going directly to the person to solve that. Whereas when you're creating good trouble, you're making positive change. You're moving the culture in the right direction to be more inclusive, inclusive <laughs> I don't have words anymore. <laughs> you're making positive change. That's good trouble. Like get involved in some good trouble to make some positive change. That's how you know, if you're questioning, is th- would this be good trouble or bad trouble? What's your intended outcome? exactly that's i think that's i love that you guys are have like marked that as thinking about the your the outcome of the situation you like working with stephanie do you intend for your supervisor to have to now discipline her in a for something that could have easily been resolved with just you know you showing her something so i mean i love that i love that just to consider the outcome yeah i don't think there's enough of that going on (laughs) (laughs) Stephanie, earlier we were kind of chatting about, you know, themes to cover, and you had mentioned um, kind of a personal experience that's happened with you about this area. So like things that you've experienced as a private practice owner and businesswoman and how these things have impacted you. So I didn't know if this was a good opportunity to kind of segue into that. Absolutely. You know, now I would share with you just some of my, my own personal values. Um, you know, I'm somebody that I, I thrive, I tend to thrive in 
spaces. I, I am resilient. I do not see barriers, or I, I do not want to remind myself that there are barriers that ex- exist for me. While there are, I feel like I thrive. Still, I thrive. Um, so, you know, I ventured into private practice. All was good and gravy. However, I, you know, I am now in a situation where um, I'll give some background information. Um, when I first started, I had very small issues, such as, you know, the patients preferencing to, you know, some of my employees, they maybe a, 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 pa- a patient did not preference working with them as opposed to, say, a Kurdish therapist or, and vice versa. Four reasons, four reasons perceived of competence. It wasn't just because I would feel more comfortable. It was just um, just making uh, prejudices about competence. You know, these were my early experiences. I classify them as very, um, you know, small compared to what I'm dealing with now. You know, I feel like uh, what I'm experiencing right now is more consistent with like big company problems. Where now we're now that we're doing more sophisticated work. You know, I've been involved in a situation that's escalated to working with companies that. I work with companies that I um, contract with. We do. A, I do a lot of subcontracting and so forth. And now I find myself where I'm being manipulated for my status as a minority women-owned black enterprise. And that actually, I want to reference that the credential, it's an actual credential. Um, so, you know, economically, there are systems that recognize the disenfranchisement and the underrepresentation of companies being owned and operated by minorities. And thus, you have programs that have been implemented already to kind of help us have a fighting chance to ensure that we have access, that we are considered, that we're considered amongst major mainstream, predominantly white-owned companies. And so, you know, here I am at a at a phase in my career where you know, to go from someone that has, you know, in, in mind thrived, has been resilient, you know, where barriers, where I wanted to thrive in a space where I felt barriers will not, will not stop me. But yet you have this very large corporation, and this is actually a corporation with a very large presence in, in ASHA and speech pathology, which is even more disheartening. On the back end, um, you know, when it comes to, contr- the, I, in essence, my minority status, my credential has given this company the, um, it, it gave the company the benefit of qualifying for contracts. And as a result, they were awarded contracts for, this is year three. <laughs> However, I've been excluded from participating in any of that business, and that is fraud. It is fraud. It's 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 something that obviously has been audited, and obviously, um, I three years later, in three years later in business, I'm a little smarter, I'm a little wiser, and I began asking questions, and this was uncovered, and it's just you know to now have to live with the daily reminder that my blackness, my being minority, my being a minority enterprise, I have to face the reality that that too will be a barrier for me. That too can, that too can now, I mean, it's just disheartening, you know, that I'm forced to deal with that reality that it's, it's something that is going to limit me in, in some way, if I make sense. It, it does. I feel like what I'm hearing from each of your stories is 
is a a breaking of trust at nearly every step of the way. It's like, who can you trust? What can you trust? Like who, who's going to take advantage of me now in this circumstance? Like to be faced with that constantly when you're out in the world is as you both have mentioned, exhausting, like completely. And you've, we mentioned mental health issues related to this as well in the previous episode, like, Golly. <laughs> and, and and Leanne, it's it's every phase of the way, every phase of development, you know, it's just like this ever present lingering possibility, you know, that that you you may experience this, you know, you may experience um bias, you may experience something systemic just holding you back. You know, it's I think the most important part that I want listeners to hear in the patterns, the, that at every phase there, there can be something, you know, and, and it's really important to acknowledge that when a person of color enters your workspace, imagine what their experiences have been. What are, what were the patterns prior to their coming to your workplace? You know, and sometimes it's okay to ask questions, to ask them what, you know, what's been your experience? What, you know, it's okay to ask questions because we we would, you know, in the same way, I would hope that if I had a question, it would be received well. You know, it's, I think we should get back to questioning and really understanding whom we're dealing with. And I think that's going to go a long way in just our being able to connect and understand and be a little bit more sensitive to people in the work in the workplace. Yeah, I think that's excellent. If you're seeking to make this positive change as part of your personal level change that you're working on as part of your workforce level, it's it's approaching that colleague or approaching that person in your community and asking and having a conversation. It's about relationship building. It's knowing that person. You don't have to make assumptions or presuppositions about people when you know them. The only way you're going to get to know somebody and the skills that they have and the work that they do is by interacting with them, talking to them. I think also I hear often, I hear professionals say, you know, I really don't like to bring um, race into my clinical practice. Um, I think it's inappropriate. And I that's so frustrating for me because I feel like there are a lot of SLPs of color who have not had that privilege to be able to say, you know, when I walk into work, I leave race at the door. So a lot of uh, clinicians don't get the, a lot of SLPs of color do not get the privilege to say, I, I don't, I don't want to talk about race because it is, it is omnipresent. It is, it is forced upon us, even when we don't even want to talk about it uh, from, you know, our workspace to our patients. I've, you know, I've come into work with uh, my hair braided and I've had, you know, my colleagues make joke who will like, talk in a Jamaican accent the whole time I'm at work or every time I'm around, they all start talking in a Jamaican accent, essentially saying that my hair is in dreadlocks or making comments about, oh, uh, Mary Louise is smoking reefer in the stairwell, all because my hair is braided, all because of how I, all, all because of how I'm wearing my hair. That is a microaggression. I don't go to work to, to, in, to endure those kinds of comments. Same for my patients. When I finished school, a graduate school, I was working in a very, very rural part of the United States, a very rural area. 
And I had lots of patients who had very, very little interaction with any person of color, especially a black woman. And it was nothing for them to drop the N-word in my session uh, in front of me um, and and tell me jokes, racially, um, you know, racially inappropriate jokes would tell me about race, racial stereotypes about black people. Oh, well, you know, your people steal. And you know, these are these are comments that I'm having to endure in the middle of my clinical session. Me helping someone. These are the things that I'm having to listen to. People call me out my name. People tell me jokes. People call me colored girl instead of by my name or the SLP. And, you know, I keep pushing. I keep pushing, but I don't go to work to endure those comments. And so I have to speak up. I don't get the privilege to say, you know what, I'm leaving, I'm leaving race out of my clinical practice because when my patients call me that colored girl, I don't get I don't get the option to say I'm not I'm not going to I'm not going to talk about race in my profession. It is forced upon me and it is forced upon a lot of SLPs. And so when we say, "Oh, you know, I think it's inappropriate to talk about race in our clinical practice." I think it's dismissive and I think it is adding and contributing to the problem that we have now. So we need to start being aware and we need to start talking about it. It's not going to be comfortable. It is not going to be comfortable at all. It is not comfortable for me or Stephanie or a lot of other people who are going through similar things. It is not comfortable for us. It will not be comfortable for anybody, Um, but we have to start talking about it. And we have to start bringing these topics into our clinical practice, into our meetings, into our universities, into our workplaces, into our circle of colleagues. We've got to start talking about it. There's like nothing to follow that up with. (laughs) (laughs) But Mary Louise, I'm 100% here for it. Like I agree. Yeah. Like I loved that so much. I feel like you were speaking your heart, speaking your truth, the truth that not not only is personal to you, but to nearly everyone who's experiencing this. And I thank you so much for sharing that with us because I've I've heard those comments too, that people will say, let's just not talk about race. Let's not bring it into therapy. And I'm like, how can you live your life and not know that it, it influences everything? Yeah, trust me, I don't want to talk about this. I'd love to be talking about um, other med SLP things. That's where my heart lies. That's where my passion <laughs> is. But I don't get the I don't get the privilege to talk about that all the time. Sometimes I have to talk about things that yeah. um, are more important and pressing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Stephanie, you'd mentioned a customer service example, um, working with the Spanish speaking patients, and and how these types of topics can also affect patient care. Um, did you want to kind of expand upon that? Yeah, sure. One of my experiences, um, I guess I had a CF and my CF was very brand new. This is Texas. You know, in Texas, I feel like at some way you will always be faced with Spanish. And I had a Spanish speaking patient and I, and I, or rather I've had a wealth of Spanish speaking patients that I've had to attend to both clinically and then in my private practice. And one of my clinical fellows, when I, during her training, you know, I, I felt it important to really um, be intentional about, it, for my CFs in my practice, being intentional about literally a crash course in medical Spanish or um, just little terminologies that someone could learn, you know, that have everything to do with 
introducing yourself, you know, knowing how to say language and speech in, in, in Spanish and, or knowing how to say tragar, diga, you know, yellow, things like very basic words. I think it's so important. And, um, you know, I drive home customer service. That is something that is extremely important to me. It's something that I fashion every day, every single day in my daily experience of work. And for her, you know, I sat her down and I, and I just kind of gave her some perspective and let her, made her more aware that it's not just her going in with an agenda, but to some degree, you've also have, you also have to, you have to break the ice. You have to, if you're one, if, as you're approaching that therapy room and you're meeting your patient for the first time or interacting with their family members, it's just so important that you ease in, that you uh, break the ice, that you make them comfortable with you. Because you do have some families that are apprehensive about working with um, therapists that don't look like them, that don't speak their language. They're apprehensive. But sometimes I feel like when you make these small efforts to try and understand uh, somebody else's language, I think that can go a long way. Even in even in circumstances where you do have an interpreter present, just because an interpreter present doesn't mean you don't you don't need to participate any longer. Sometimes when I'm in my sessions, I would ask the interpreter, excuse me, how do you say hard or how do you say a fast? And the interpreter will tell me and the interpreter will will talk quite all right. But I, too, would try to when I'm speaking, I, too, would try to use some of those words and at least make an attempt. So that way I make the it's just the overall presentation of my customer service. I think this is one way that we can begin packaging a quality experience, especially for dysphagia management uh, for families uh, that are uh, that are Spanish speaking only. Important interpreters are definitely uh, needed. Interpreters are wholly necessary, but I do feel as though our, we can still, we should still participate even when an interpreter is present and at least show that, show our appreciation through tr attempting to learn the language. Because over time, you actually do pick up words. And it's just sometimes if a, when, if you're walking past a patient's room, it doesn't take much to just easily say hello in Spanish, you know, after after you've been exposed to it for some time. And I just feel like that really improves the experience overall for patients when you can um, when you can just kind of show them that you have some sense of understanding of their background and um, language. Yeah, I really like how, you know, in all the examples from the first talk and this one, we're not just narrowing it down to like interacting with one group of people. You know, we're considering cultural competence and cultural humility across all the various cultures that we interact with. And I think that's important to remind ourselves too, that, you know, our focus right now is definitely on responding to how our black community is treated in this country. But at the same time, it's looking at on our work life too. How are we taking the principles that we learn here and applying them across the board where we're working? So to kind of recap now about the change that we want to see and, and the actions that we want to take, we've talked about a lot of different stuff at the personal level, work level, state organizations, ASHA, and in Basla. So I wanted to kind of go back and, and kind of summarize it for our listeners so that 
they kind of have it in their brains as they're departing from our talk today. So let's go back to the beginning at the personal level and then just kind of summarize what are some of those changes we want to see our organization kind of be making at that personal and work level. And this is this is like a review of basically what we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. I definitely would encourage um, informed decision making. I know on part one, we spoke we spoke quite a bit about sometimes how HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities can be marginalized or barred access from stellar opportunities. I think that if we're all aware of that, you, me, if we're all aware of that possibility or just that history, it's a reality and it's history. With us being more aware, I do feel like decision makers in placements can begin to perhaps be more conscious of this and really, really come up with a plan of how they might action, ensuring, ensuring inclusion for people coming from these universities that may not have access to the same network or the same preferences. There you know, other bigger universities, more established, more visible universities being having more of a presence and having more of a reputation, easy access getting into those environments. You know, I, I think that that's one thing that university or placement supervisors or administrators in hospitals, in schools or wherever have you, those in decision-making positions, I feel like this is something that all of them can do by being more conscious of this, by being more aware of it. Some may even go the extra mile and perhaps have a dedicated position quarterly or biennially or whatever have you. But I do feel like this is urgent enough, an issue to really, really devise a plan, have a have a plan in place, so that way these these students are not barred access from these opportunities. And I think also one of the main points, if I could leave our listeners with anything, is that it starts with you, you personally making some changes, making some personal changes. That's where it starts. It, it, it starts with examining examining your own biases, examining how you're interacting with your colleagues, with your students, with your men, you know, with your mentors and mentees and um, supervisors and supervisees and basically everyone that you come in contact with this field in with in this field. How are you interacting? with them? What biases are you carrying with you? And how can you change those? I think that's the first step. It involves being aware of what's going on and then making a commitment um, to that change. And along with that commitment, that may mean uh, educating yourself. Like we talked about CEUs, we talked about, you know, doing some informal education, speaking with people who you know, maybe well-versed on these topics, speaking with them, trying to learn as much as you can. And I think inevitably, if everyone were to initiate some sort of personal change, I think we would see that snowball into a more systemic effect. So for example, when we look at, when we look at ASHA, ASHA came, you know, ASHA came out with their um, position statement about um, racism and inclusiveness several months ago, and they didn't quite hit the nail on the head. And a lot of people could have read that statement and said, you know, it's not great, but it doesn't really affect me. So I'm going to go on about my business. But there were some people who 
felt that they needed to say something personally. And they were the ones who decided to take personal action and personal responsibility for making a change. And it was just that personal awareness that several people within our organization had and they were able to get the support of others and it became something bigger to the point where ASHA changed their position statement. And from that, we also got, you know, we also got other things from ASHA, such as the listening session. ASHA now has a team that's working on how can we start examining these racial barriers in our profession, in our organization. And so it started with one person who decided to speak up and that has progressed into something bigger, a bigger movement in our profession. I mean, we're sitting here right now talking about this and I think that's fabulous. And a lot of this, a lot of this conversation was sparked because of things that took place several months ago. And it started with one person who decided to speak up and hold our organization accountable. And that's what we need to start doing on a smaller scale, personally, in our workplaces, at our state organizations, at our universities. We need to start holding ourselves accountable and the people that we work with, we need to start holding them accountable. And I think it will snowball into something bigger and have a greater effect that our profession needs. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that's absolutely right. I really appreciated how you like put what I was imagining, but hadn't really got language behind it, that when we have enough people making, taking this personal responsibility and, and making this commitment to change and, and following through with it, that's how we can also get systemic change. Yeah. Just through the path that you described. I mean, we've seen it. We've seen it happen now. We have these illustrations of how we've, we've started that effect of creating systemic change at ASHA level. They're having to make changes to how they do things. And like you've mentioned, they have to create a team now to see what it is that we need to change going forward, removing these barriers to get our end result. So Stephanie, Mary Louise, this was excellent. I'm so sad that we are out of time now for, oh. for our part two talk. This was really, really good. I really appreciate you two stepping up to the plate and, and having hard conversations and making good trouble. And it, it takes a lot, like you've mentioned during this talk, um, a lot of energy to, to discuss things that ha happened in the past and basically have to relive that trauma to share it with everybody else, to get everybody on the page of like, this is what's happening. I really look forward to a day when that's not necessary anymore. Yeah. So thank you. Both. I agree. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yes. Thank you, Leanne. And thank you, Stephanie. <laughs> All right, you all. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to the hardworking team at SpeechTherapyPD.com for their sweet editing skills and for sponsoring ASHA CEU credit for this episode. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. 